Chapter Twenty Three of the Three Midshipmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Three Midshipmen by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter Twenty Three. Bound for China. Her Majesty's frigate Dugong was fitted with all dispatch for sea at Portsmouth. So was Her Majesty's brig of war Blenny, just commissioned by Commander Hemming, well known, as the papers stated, for his gallantry on the coast of Africa, and on every occasion when he had an opportunity of displaying it. The papers spoke truly, and well had our old friend won his present rank. Both the frigate and the brig were destined, it was supposed, for the China Seas but this was not known to a certainty. The Dugong had been commissioned by Captain Grant, Alec Murray's old commander in the Archer, who had some short time before received his post rank. Captain Lascelles, with whom the three midshipmen first went to sea, commanded at this time a line of battle ship on the Indian station. Who has not heard of the blue posts at Portsmouth, to be found not far from the landing place known as the Point? now sadly encroached on by new batteries and a broad wooden pier. One afternoon, at the time of which I am speaking, a cab stopped at the door of that well-known inn, with a portmanteau outside, and a cocked hat case, a sword, a gun-case, and several other articles, including a young naval officer inside. He nodded smilingly to the waiter and boots, who came to get out his things, as to old acquaintances, and then, having paid the cabman, entered the inn. No sooner had he put his head into the coffee-room than another young officer, in the uniform of a mate or past midshipman, jumped up, and seizing him by the hand, exclaimed, "'I am delighted to see you, my dear Jack. You've come to join the Dugong, I hope.' "'If you belong to her, Adair, I wish I was,' answered Jack Rogers, for he was the newcomer. "'But I am not. The fact is, Hemming has got command of the Blenny, and I applied and got appointed to her. It can't be helped now.' Any news of Murray? He wrote me word some little time ago that he expected to get appointed to a ship. I wish that I could have had him with me, but we three have been on the same station, and mostly together all our lives, and we can scarcely expect the same good fortune to continue. We tried to keep together, and we succeeded, answered Adair. There's nothing like trying, in my opinion. You're right there, old fellow. There isn't a doubt of it, exclaimed Jack Rogers who had been a little out of spirits, and inclined to take a somewhat gloomy view of affairs in general. No wonder, for he had just left as happy a home as any to be found in old England. It was a cold March day, too, and he was chilled with his journey. He took off his greatcoat, which, with his other things, Boots carried to his room, and then the two old messmates sat down before the fire. They had been talking on for some time while their dinner was getting ready, when Adair observed a young man sitting at a table a little way off, narrowly observing them. Terence looked at him in return. "'Do you know, Jack, I do verily believe that there sits no other than Bully Pigeon,' he whispered. "'What can he be doing down here?' The stranger, seeing them looking at him, got up, and approaching them with his hand extended, said, "'What, do I see some old friends? Rogers, Adair, very glad to see you. How do you do, how do you do?' You remember me, surely. I'm Pigeon. Thus addressed, it would not have been in the nature of either of the two midshipmen to have refused to shake hands with their old schoolfellow, bully though he had been. 
they invited him to join them, and when they had dined, they all three sat over their wine together, talking merrily of former days. I'm going out to China in the diplomatic line, observed Pigeon in his old tone. I have a notion that I shall be able to manage the celestials. There are few people who can deceive me. These, and a few other similar remarks, showed that Pigeon, in one respect, was little changed from what he had been in his early days. When or how he was going out to China, he did not say. They had been chatting away for some time when another cab rattled up to the inn, and presently at the door of the coffee-room who should appear, to the delight of Rogers and Adair, but Murray himself. They dragged him into the room, each eager to know what ship he was come to join. Paddy gave a shout of delight when he heard that he was appointed to the Dugong. He told them besides that she was certainly under orders for China, to sail as soon as ready for sea, and that the Blenny was also to be sent there. The old schoolfellows, as may be supposed, passed a very pleasant evening, their pleasure being heightened with the anticipation of being together in whatever work they might be engaged. Even Bully Pigeon was sufferable, as Paddy observed, if he was not altogether agreeable. He had a number of strange adventures to narrate, of which he was the hero. Although his accounts were not implicitly believed, it was agreed that, at all events, they were possible, which was somewhat in his favour. Two weeks after this, Her Majesty's ships Dugong and Blenny were gliding under all sail across the Bay of Biscay. "'The frigate looks something like a dowager, with her small daughter following in her wake, sir,' observed Jack, glancing his eye from the brig to her big consort as he walked to the deck with his captain. "'We must try and make the little daughter win a name for herself out among the Celestials.' said Captain Hemming in return. That we will, sir, if we get the chance, answered Jack. Aye, Rogers, but we must make the chance, remarked his captain with emphasis. So we will, sir, said Jack warmly. There is not a man on board who'll not be glad of it. Captain Hemming had a sincere regard and respect for Jack, as Jack had for him. They had both seen each other well tried and never found wanting, and they could thus converse frankly and without reserve. Neither Hemming nor Jack were people to talk without fully intending to perform. Indeed, those who knew them felt sure that when dash or cool courage or perseverance and intelligence were especially required, they would show that they possessed them all. Jack liked his ship and most of his brother officers, as well as his captain, and was a general favourite with them. He had brought two companions, Adair's old African follower, Queerface, which he had given to Jack, and a fine Newfoundland dog, Sancho by name. Jack had intended leaving Queerface at home, as Paddy remarked, to remind his brothers and sisters of him. The compliment was somewhat doubtful, but the monkey had played so many curious tricks and had committed so much mischief that no one would undertake the charge of him, and therefore, like a bad boy, he was sent off to sea again in disgrace. As was natural, Sancho and Queerface became very intimate, though not at the same time perfectly friendly. Each, it appears, was striving for the mastery. Queerface, monkey though he was, gained the day, and one of his great amusements was to mount Sancho's back, and to make him run round and round the deck with him, whipping him on and chattering away all the time, most vociferously, to the great amusement of the seamen, if not always to that of the first lieutenant. Jack had another charge to look after, a young midshipman, Harry Bevan by name, who had been especially committed to his charge. The little fellow had been a petted, somewhat spoiled child, an only son, yet go to sea he would, 
and his parents never had refused him anything, so they let him have his will, though it almost broke their hearts. Jack promised to take the best care of him he could. Harry was not exactly a pickle, but he had very little notion of taking care of himself, so Jack had quite enough to do to look after him, in addition to Queerface and Sancho. Harry and Sancho were very great friends, but Queerface evidently looked upon him as a rival in his master's affection, and bore him no goodwill. This feeling of the monkey was increased by the tricks which the young midshipman played him whenever he had the opportunity. At last he was never able to approach Queerface without a rope in his hand, which he held behind his back, or doubled up in his pocket. The monkey, in the most sagacious way, would skip about till he had ascertained whether the weapon was there or not. If it was there, as soon as he caught sight of it, he would spring up into the rigging, and sit on a ratline, as quiet and demure as a judge, without attempting to retaliate. On board the frigate there was little to interrupt the usual routine. Murray had carried one of his parrots with him, and the sagacious bird afforded almost as much amusement as did Billy Pigeon, who soon showed that he was very little altered from what he had been in his youth. He could not bully, but he could give abundant evidence of being still an arrant donkey. Pigeon now called himself a philosopher, and used to be very fond of broaching his philosophical principles, as he denominated his nonsense. One day, while dining in the gun-room, he began as usual. As he drank his wine, he grew bolder and bolder in his assertions. At last he declared that he did not believe that there was a place of punishment after death. He had taken it into his head that the surgeon would side with him. "'I'm sure, doctor, a sensible man like you will not assert that such is a fact,' he continued. "'What use would there be in it?' "'I'll tell you what, my laddie. There's one very good use it will be put to, and that will be to stow away all such vicious, ignorant donkeys as you are,' answered the doctor, with great emphasis and deliberation. Pigeon was no way disconcerted at this somewhat powerful rebuke, but continued as before. Indeed, nothing is so difficult as to make a conceited fool cease from talking folly. At last the first lieutenant struck his fist on the table with a force which made all the glasses ring, as he exclaimed, I'll tell you what, Mr. Pigeon, this ship belongs to a Christian queen, and while I'm the senior officer present, I'll not allow you to sneer against religion, or a word to be spoken which her gracious majesty would not approve of. Now, sir, hold your tongue, or I'll report your conduct, and have you put under arrest. The diplomatist, though looking very silly, began again, but another loud rap on the table silenced him. It did not, however, silence Murray's parrot, who had found its way, as it often did, into the cabin, and the moment the voices ceased, Polly set up such a roar of laughter that Pigeon fancied that she was laughing at him. The silly fellow's rage knew no bounds. There was, however, nothing else on which he dared to vent it, except on the loquacious bird. A bottle of port wine stood near. He seized it by the neck to throw it at Polly, who, unconscious of the coming storm, only chattered the louder. The stopper was out. As he lifted it above his head, a copious shower of the ruddy juice descended over his white shirt and waistcoat, and head and face, so blinding him that he missed his aim, but broke the bottle, while Polly gave way to louder laughter than ever, in which everybody most vociferously joined. The wretched pigeon had to make his escape to his cabin to change his dress, nor did he venture out again for the rest of the day some of the time being passed in listening to the not very complimentary remarks made upon him and his so-called philosophy. 
If anything would have cured him of his folly, that might have done so. He had some glimmering suspicion that he was wrong, but he had no hearty desire to be right, and when that is the case, a man is certainly in a bad way. Day after day the two ships sailed on in sight of each other. The brig was very fast, and though so much smaller, could outsail the frigate, which was not remarkable for speed. Frequently, when they were together, Polly used to take a flight to pay her old friend Queerface a visit, and he always seemed delighted to see her. He exhibited his pleasure by all sorts of antics, though he could not express what he felt so fluidly with his tongue as she did. At length the Cape of Good Hope was doubled, without the Flying Dutchman having been seen, though the philosopher Pigeon kept a bright lookout for him. One night he declared that he saw the phantom bark sailing right up in the wind's eye, but it was found to be only the Blenny, following the frigate under easy sail with a fair wind astern. On de Gaulle, in the island of Ceylon, celebrated for the rich spices it exported, and supposed to be one of the most ancient emporiums of commerce, was visited, and at last the most modern and yet the largest emporium in the Indian seas, Singapore, was reached. This wonderful city, which was founded as late as 1824 by Sir Stanford Raffles, on a spot where, though formerly the site of a Malay capital, at that time but a few huts stood, is now the most wealthy and flourishing on the shores of those eastern seas. Here vessels bring produce and manufactures from all parts of the world, again to be distributed among all the neighbouring countries. There are no duties levied of any sort or description, so that people of all nations are encouraged to come there with their goods. The Chinese especially flock to the port, and great numbers are settled in the city and throughout the island, largely contributing by their persevering industry to its prosperity. Who does not know the look of a Chinese with his piggish eyes, thatched like hat, yellow-brown skin, black tail, and wide short trousers? The streets swarmed with them, ever busy, ever toiling to collect dollars, the most industrious people under the sun, yet the least lovable or attractive. Their houses may be known by the red lintels of the doorposts, covered with curious characters and designs, while at night the persevering people may be seen still working away by the light of huge paper lanterns covered with the strangest of devices. The whole island is not larger than the Isle of Wight, but already there are a hundred thousand people living on it, collected from all quarters of the globe. There are numerous, very handsome houses in the town, mostly roofed with red brick tiles, while the higher spots in the neighbourhood are chiefly occupied by the villas of the European merchants and other principal residents. Such was the place before which Her Majesty's ships Dugong and Blenny brought up, outside a fleet of strange-looking junks, with flags of all colours, devices and shapes flying at their mastheads, while in different parts of the extensive roads were ships belonging to nearly all the countries in the world, English, American and Dutch, however, predominating. Although just then the British and Chinese empires were linked in the bonds of peace, the ships of war of the former had plenty to do in keeping in order the numerous hordes of pirates which infested those seas, and considerably impeded her commerce, plundering her merchantmen, and cutting the throats of the crews whenever opportunity offered. The frigate and brig had been at Singapore but a few days when an open boat under sail was seen entering the harbour. She stood for the Blenny, which was the outer vessel. Jack Rogers, who was doing duty as officer of the watch, hailed her to know what she wanted. A glance at the condition of her crew told him more than any words could have done. Their faces were wan and bloodless, their dresses torn, and several had their heads and limbs bound up. 
One man sat at the helm, and another forward to manage the sail. The rest lay along the thwarts, or at the bottom of the boat, apparently more dead than alive. The boat came alongside, but no one in her had strength left to climb on board. Even the man at the helm sank back exhausted as she was made fast. Jack ordered some slings to be got ready to hoist them up, and then, taking some brandy and water in a bottle, he leaped down into the boat to administer it to the poor people. His restorative was only just in time, for many of them were already almost dead. The surgeon and most of the officers of the brig were on shore. Jack therefore signalled to the frigate to send a doctor forthwith. Dr. McCann, who had been appointed to the frigate, accompanied by Murray, soon came on board, and every possible assistance was given to the famished strangers. After some time, the man who had steered the boat recovered. He said that he was mate of a ship bound from China to the Australian colonies, and that when she was about 300 miles distant from Singapore, she had been attacked by a fleet of piratical Illinois prahus, and her captain and crew had resisted to the utmost, but she was reduced almost to a wreck, and at night, by some accident, caught fire. The first mate was the only surviving officer. The captain and the rest, with many of the crew, had been killed by the pirates. During the darkness, the survivors made their escape unpursued, though they could see the prahus approaching the burning wreck soon after they had left her. As soon as this information was conveyed on shore, the frigate and brig were ordered to proceed to sea in search of the pirate fleet. No one was sorry to have work to do, though small amount of glory was to be obtained in pirate hunting. It's our duty, at all events, and that is one comfort, observed Jack to Adair, who had been lent to the brig in consequence of the illness of her second lieutenant. Thus two of the old schoolfellows were together. The squadron, sailing to the northward, cruised in every direction where they were likely to fall in with the piratical fleets. But though many traces of them were discovered in ruined villages and stranded vessels, the crews of which had been murdered or carried off into slavery, the pirates themselves were nowhere to be seen. At last it occurred to Captain Grant that in all probability the pirates were receiving constant information of their movements and had thus managed to elude them. He therefore determined to fit out three boats which would, by being able to steal along shore and pull head to wind, be more likely to come on the pirates unawares. No sooner was the thought conceived than it was put into execution. Each boat was fitted with a long gun on the bows, besides swivels at the sides for closer quarters, and manned with twelve hands armed to their teeth besides officers, and in the larger boats two or three extra men. Rogers and Adair got charge of two of the boats, Murray would gladly have gone in the third with Mr. Cherry, the second lieutenant of the frigate, who had command of the expedition, but two midshipmen had already been directed to get ready to go in her, and he did not like to deprive either of them of the pleasure they anticipated. The boats did not leave the ships till some two or three hours after dark, that none of the friends of the pirates might discover what had occurred. No one expected anything but amusement from the expedition. Nat Cherry, their leader, was one of the most good-natured jolly fellows in the navy, and seldom failed to make everybody under him happy. They could not bring themselves to believe that a whole fleet of pirate prahus would ever wait their attack for a moment. They felt almost sure that directly they appeared the enemy would attempt to escape. Just as Jack was shoving off from the brig, Queerface, who had been watching his opportunity, made a spring into the boat, and there was instantly a loud cry from all on board her, 
that he might be allowed to remain. Oh, he's such a divertin' rogue. He'll keep every mother's son of us as merry as crickets, sang out an Irish topman, whose own humour generally proved a source of amusement to all with him. The request was granted, and Queerface seemed to enjoy the prospect of the trip as much as his companions. Away pulled the squadron of boats. When daylight dawned, they were coasting along the shore of an island, fringed with coconut trees, and hills rising in the centre. There were numerous deep indentations, bays, and gulfs, with bluff cliffs here and there, and high rocks scattered about, capital spots in which whole fleets of prahus might lie hid, without much chance of being discovered. The weather was very hot, as it is apt to be within a few miles of the equator, and when there was no wind, and the sea shone like a burnished mirror, the sun came down with very considerable force on the top of the heads of the party in the boats. Still their spirits did not flag. Jack and Adair, indeed, had been pretty well seasoned to the heat of the coast of Africa, where, if not greater, it was often far less supportable. Mr. Cherry led. Jack and Perez followed side by side. A constant fire of jokes was kept up between the two boats. Queerface evidently thought that there was something in the wind, and kept jumping about with unusual activity, keeping apparently as bright a lookout as anybody on board. Not an inlet was passed unexplored. Still, not a sign of the pirate could they discover. On going up one small but deepish river, they came close to the banks on a native village. The inhabitants must have taken to flight on their approach, for not a human being was to be seen. "'That looks suspicious,' exclaimed Adair. "'We ought to burn this village to teach them better manners.' Mr. Cherry, fortunately, had no such intention. He had an idea that burning people's houses was not the best way of making friends with them. "'Indeed, it would be a pity to have to destroy so picturesque a place,' observed Jack Rogers. The houses were mostly separate, built on piles four or five feet above the ground. They were of one story, with a deep veranda or gallery running round them, a ladder leading up to it. The roofs, which were high and pointed with deep eaves, were covered with a thick coating of palm leaves, and so were the walls, while the floors were made of bamboo, cut in strips and placed nearly an inch apart, being covered with a thick, beautifully woven mat. They appeared strong, but very springy, so much so that when Adair began to dance a polka on one of them, he very nearly bounded up to the roof. The village was surrounded and interspersed with coconut and other palm trees, and with bananas, whose dark green foliage gave effect to lighter tints of the forest. The thick jungle pressed hard on every side, leaving space only here and there for some small fields and gardens. Mr. Cherry would not allow the slightest injury to be done to the houses, for though it was suspected that they belonged to the pirates, no traces of booty were to be discovered. After spending some time in examining the locality, they were about to embark when a dark visage was seen peering out at them from among the trees. Instead of making chase to catch him, Mr. Cherry stood still and beckoned to him. This gave the native courage, who, seeing also that no injury had been done to the village, after a little hesitation, advanced. One of Jack's crew was a Malay, who could speak not only his own language, but that of many of the surrounding tribes. He had no difficulty in entering into conversation with the native, who asserted that his people had taken the British for pirates, and had run away in consequence. To prove his sincerity, he offered to pilot the boats to the chief haunts of the pirates. As there was no reason to doubt him, his offer was accepted. 
he merely requested time to equip himself for the expedition he entered one of the houses and soon returned with a couple of creases stuck into his sash and a sword by his side and the whole party embarking once more proceeded on their voyage their volunteer pilot was a merry talkative fellow what his real name was it was difficult to make out exactly so jack gave him that of hoddy doddy which it sounded very like and he at once readily answered to it all that day they sailed on without seeing anything of the pirates they began at last to fancy that hoddy doddy was deceiving them but he entreated them not to despair and promised by noon the next day at farthest to bring them in sight of the marauders they brought up at night in a sheltered bay where the water was as smooth as a mill-pond jack and adair grew very sentimental as they leaned back in the stern sheets of mr cherry's boat where all the officers had collected to smoke their cigars and looked up into the dark sky sprinkled with stars innumerable what they said need not be repeated come lads dismount from your pegasus and turn in and get a little sleep cried their commanding officer we've a hard day's work before us to-morrow i suspect this warning brought their thoughts back to the business in which they were engaged and returning to their respective boats those not on watch were very quickly wrapped in what as paddy said might have been soft repose if it wasn't that the planks were so mighty hard they were awoke before dawn by a summons from hoddy doddy who declared that there was sufficient light for him to pilot them if they wished to proceed the anchors were at once got up and they pulled away along shore by daylight they came to a broad channel some miles wide their pilot averred that they should find the pirate fleet across it away they dashed a thin silvery mist hung over the ocean sufficient however to conceal them from any one on the lookout from the opposite shore only here and there as they approached a few palm trees rearing their heads above the mist showed where the shore itself was if the pirates only happen to be there we shall catch them to a certainty shouted paddy to jack as they pulled rapidly on soon all were ordered to keep silence and hoddy doddy was seen to be indulging in a variety of curious and somewhat violent gesticulations just then appeared the masts and yards of a whole fleet of illanoon prahus there could be no doubt that they were the pirates mr cherry had no necessity to order his followers to give way the seamen laid their backs to the oars and made the boats fly hissing through the water they thought that they should take the enemy by surprise but the sound of tom-toms beating pistols being fired and loud shouts showed them that the pirates were not asleep and that they themselves had been heard if not seen just then a puff of wind blew aside the mist and exhibited some twenty prahus or more drawn up in order of battle and ready to receive them a larger body than they were might have hesitated about attacking still it did not enter the head of their gallant leader that it would be possible to retreat he ordered jack to attack on one wing and adair on the other while he pulled for the centre of the fleet firing his long gun as he did so the pirates were evidently astonished at this bold proceeding and at the way the shots pitched into them probably they thought that the boats they saw were only the advanced guard and that a much stronger force was following first one and then another cut their cables and getting out their long sweeps pulled away on either hand some four or five stood to the southward and jack in hot haste followed them adair pursued nearly the same number round the north end of the island while the main body with whom mr cherry was engaged 
showed a disposition to run up a narrow inlet or channel, which appeared astern of them. Jack cheered on his men, and they, nothing loath, gave way with a will. Still the pirates showed that they possessed very fast heels, beside which they could kick, as the British found to their cost, and several shots from their stern guns struck the boat as she got nearer to them. A groan burst from the lips of one of the seamen. He pulled on, but Jack saw his hand suddenly let go his oar, and down he sank. Directly afterwards another poor fellow was hit. This loss considerably lessened the speed of the boat. Some little time also was occupied in placing the wounded men in the stern sheets, and in looking to their wounds. End of chapter 23